Welcome to VMN Volume 3, Episode 10. The date is October 25th, 2022. VMN is produced and transmitted from unceded Abenaki territory of so-called Vermont. Today we will be discussing the ins and outs of grand jury resistance. It is of utmost importance that today's activists be ready to deal with fishing expeditions conducted under the cover of grand juries. Our guests will be lawyers Sandra Freeman and Kira Kelly, and we may have a surprise uh, guest coming on later. Welcome. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Kira. Hello. Thanks for having us, Marina. So what can you tell us about um, what we need to know about uh, grand juries, whether they be federal or one of the state ones? How are these used as repressive mechanisms? Well, I think that we've got a lot to explore about sort of the mechanics of how grand juries are used as um, mechanisms and tools of repression. The important thing that I think people should know from the outset is that this has historically been a tool of political repression and like a political weapon since the founding of the United States and then since pre-founding times. Um, The grand jury is a colonial construct and there were grand jury investigations by federalists into anti-federalists right after the United States became a political experiment. Um, It's something that's been going on for a long time and the the secrecy of the grand jury, the the thing that I think, you know, really helps to accomplish that sort of repressive um, mechanism is only something that we find rooted in the rules of criminal procedure. It is a rule of criminal procedure that makes this all secret, that entitles the federal and state governments to essentially have secret trials of grand jury contemnors. And I think we've got a lot to explore about this particular political tool. So what are what are these secret trials you're talking about? Well, when somebody is held in contempt of a grand jury, it's not technically a, a secret trial because the Supreme Court has said that trials must be public even when they are for um, the contempt. However, the proceedings before the grand jury, the questions that are asked of witnesses, the um, are are completely secret. There is no judge. There is only the prosecutor, the grand jurors, and then a witness. And so, when we're talking about grand jury secrecy, the the questions that are happening within the grand jury are not ones. It's not an open proceeding. When someone is held in contempt, which is what we're talking about with grand jury resistance, many times is that the the government will say to the court that this person should be held in contempt. And there are a lot of steps that the government has to go through and that they try to hurry through before they get to the trial of the contemnor. Um, That has to be public. But all of the proceedings surrounding it will often be held in secret. And the thing that we often see as public is literally the judge opening the courtroom just to say, are you going to comply? And for the contemnor to say no. Um, And for then the finding of contempt to be public. Lawyers who work on grand juries, we have a lot of fights about 
the, the record of the grand jury proceedings, different things that aren't supposed to be secret according to the rules of criminal procedure, but that many of the court actors and the judges assume because of that rule of grand jury secrecy then cover everything surrounding the grand jury, including records of the proceedings, the pleadings that are filed on behalf of people who are resisting grand juries or potentially subject to grand jury subpoenas. And um, the the secrecy is really where I think a lot of the um, the repression and fear around grand juries comes in because it, people don't know what to expect. What does this mean? Um, and it's it's thank you, Marina, for having this conversation because I think it's important that people know you do have rights and there are ways to sort of open up those proceedings to make sure that people can see what is happening and to make sure that people facing grand juries have support as they are being subpoenaed and sort of looking at this super secretive process. Can you walk us through the process that a person who would end up being called before a grand jury goes through from before they're called the process to to decide to bring them there to the summons or whatever they get being served and how long they have to answer that and what can happen along this path? Sure. There are, I mean, and, and, I'm going to be talking primarily about the rule, the federal rules of criminal procedure. There are a lot of states that have grand juries sort of written into the state constitution and the state rules of criminal procedure, but they all sort of provide for that, that secrecy. I think the first thing that most people will experience is a door knock from an agent who is looking into and as part of the investigative team. And so, you know, it brings up our our first point is to always, if an agent knocks on your door, always, always get in touch with your homies, get in touch with a lawyer who can be sort of calling them and asking, what is it that you want to talk about or what is happening? Usually after that door knock happens is when people will sometimes have delivered to them or if they have counsel, attempt to be delivered to their counsel, a grand jury subpoena. A subpoena is sought by a U.S. attorney. There is not often very much oversight that the grand jury is, is an investigative body. And so it is purportedly being used to, to investigate crimes and that the U.S. attorney overseeing the grand jury is able to, to issue subpoenas to witnesses both for testimony and for documents or items. We call a subpoena ducis tecum. Um, but that you will usually see that subpoena delivered to somebody for often a very short while later after delivery of the subpoena. And so it is important that if somebody has been approached by an agent, been trying to handle it themselves, as soon as they see that subpoena to be getting in touch with lawyers who know how to deal with grand juries um, and have experience litigating these grand jury subpoenas. Oftentimes when people see that subpoena, they think, well, this is a court order. There is no option. I need to go talk to them or turn over these documents or whatever it is that is in my possession. And the reality is that there are a lot of ways to, to challenge that subpoena. Um, and what we seek to do as lawyers 
when someone comes in who says, I have a grand jury subpoena, is first start investigating and um, writing different bases for a motion to quash, which is lawyers speak for like, get rid of this subpoena. Subpoenas that are unlawfully issued, that are propounded based on unlawful surveillance and that are essentially illegal are not lawfully issued subpoenas. And so there's not an automatic requirement to be complying with that court order. And there are ways that we can challenge the basis for it. But usually the way it operates is that things happen so quickly, people feel very compelled and pressured. And I think that that's also part of the repressive mechanism of the thing. Our surprise guest is here. This is Jeremy Hammond, who is our victim of a grand jury fishing expedition. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, y'all. Respects and solidarities to you all. Thanks for inviting me for the show. I'm very excited for this conversation. So uh, Sandra Freeman, who is a, a lawyer, was describing what the legal things about, about the grand juries are. A little later, I'm going to want you as the grand jury victim to describe what you what it feels like to be the target of this kind of repressive apparatus. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go back a little bit to the first part of what Sandy was describing and also prefacing this with like, I, I don't have a ton of grand jury experience at all. So I'm mostly here to ask questions and to share more of the like totally unrelated to the actual grand jury process itself aspects of what we're trying to do, which I think is important to prepare people as much as possible for like what would happen if this were to happen to them to be able to to react in a way that is as safe as possible and thinking about, okay, if somebody shows up and does a door knock, like what actually are the first choices you have at that point in time when someone knocks on your door? And I don't know, this would be a question for people who know more than me, whether they have a subpoena in hand or if at that point in time, they're just like, hey, can I ask you a couple of questions? I'm assuming possibly it could be one or the other of those situations. And and how would you recommend people react? Just shut the door, just say, I don't want to talk to you. And, and is there like a way that folks at home could maybe practice some of these lines so that when we're in panic mode and we're confronted with a subpoena, the things that we panic and word vomit are the safest things possible and we don't start incriminating ourselves or each other before we've even actually been legally obligated to do that. I think that that is a, a great question. First of all, if an agent knocks on your door, like you are are not required to answer it, to let them in, right? To to interact with them. And so many of us have like these social niceties ingrained in us about wanting to, I think, not make people mad or and, and so it's important that people when they're faced with this situation, do this in a way that is real and true to you and to who you are. Like some people would not feel comfortable, like telling someone in a full throated way to like, go the F away. Other people, you know, would feel totally fine with that. I think the important thing is one, you do not have to let anyone into your home. Do not let anyone into your home. When people say, I have a couple of questions to ask you, it's, absolutely fine to say, I'm, you can talk to my lawyer, give me your card. You can talk to my lawyer. You don't have to open the door. If you do open the door, recommend that you step outside. 
so as not to give them a way to to come into to the home. I think one of the the super important things about this is if you receive a grand jury subpoena, to be letting people who support you and care about you and letting your lawyer know as soon as possible so that people can be building that support and that you are not facing this alone. That part of this functions on, on secrecy, right? The way that communities get divided is through that secrecy primarily. And so the important thing is to be letting people know right away. And in those moments, even when it feels weird and false, to be telling them, like, I don't want to talk to you. You can talk to my lawyer. Can I get your card? Even if you don't have a lawyer on hand, ask for their card, get their contact information, and then contact your lawyer, homie. What are some of the least productive things that reactions that people have to being approached in this manner? I, I think talking to them trying to explain one's way out of things can typically make things much worse and for for someone who i think is is facing that questioning also then starts your your own brain and your own anxiety over like what is happening going um what we want to do is to make sure that people feel supported and that people are not feeling alone in things. And so I think one of the worst things you can do is try to handle this on your own and alone, right? I, I, I am a lawyer. If I were faced with a subpoena, or if I have a court case against me, as much confidence as I have in my litigation skills, like we as attorneys even should not be trying to face this stuff down alone. And so I'd say like, the first thing is don't try to go it alone. Uh, Jeremy, you've experienced a lot of this repression stuff. Can you talk about how this actually makes you feel and how you can emotionally prepare yourself to deal with this kind of repressive nonsense? Right. Um, thanks for in, uh, bringing me on this conversation. Um, some great uh, advice, Sandra, by the way, your articles about surviving grand jury was uh, very informative. Um, as far as psychologically dealing with uh, being uh, subpoenaed, um, I mean, like you had mentioned, Sandra, it's, it's also overcoming some psychological, uh, social things. You know, we're social creatures. We're trained to think of these, uh, uh, folks as genuinely decent human beings. We have, uh, faith in human nature, but these, these are trained liars, uh, predators, uh, who's basically been through all this, uh, investigative, um, interrogation training to manipulate you into incriminating yourself. So like you had said, um, I, I, I want to uh, shout out to the movement for putting out plenty of materials uh, that talks about what to do if you are questioned by police officers, what to do, uh, because these type of materials are the type of information that you should know ahead of time, right? Um, and uh, it helps to, you know, of course, you don't actually have to be involved in any political movement or criminal activity to be arrested or to be subpoenaed. Any one of us uh, can have our freedoms taken away at a moment's notice, and there's no such thing as a free trial in the United States, a fair trial. But nevertheless, um, it's, it's important to take baby steps, um, you know, saying before uh, you are choosing to become involved in a certain type of activity, uh, be prepared psychologically for the uh, re potential repercussions and consequences of this uh, for yourself and others around you um, when you decide to uh, be involved in something, um, because uh, this is the type of thing that can happen, right? Um, and so knowing all these things ahead of time, 
could just help you just to follow the script when they do come, because there is no way that you could, you know, oftentimes people think that they could manipulate their way, kind of way up a situation. There is zero things that you could say to law enforcement, uh, especially at that moment when it happens. Um, and even if they say we're going to arrest you, we'll, we'll let the cards fall where they may take my ass to jail then and we'll deal with it uh, with my lawyers at a later date. Um, like you had said, Sandra, just uh, get in touch with uh, some attorneys, uh, spread awareness to uh, your community because um, it may also be happening to you and the feds are hoping that you would be silent about it, but it may also be happening to other people around uh, in your community. They may have to just be setting up fishers and sweepers to see what's going on and they're looking for the weak link in the chain. But one thing I found and I have great respect for that is uh, the movement is strong. We, we show solidarity and uh, when we are silent together, we all walk together. Um, it's all I got right now, but if there's any other specific questions. So what is the length that you will be dealing with grand jury? My understanding is a grand jury will generally last 18 months. So I believe that's, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been told that that's the longest they can hold you to try to force you to do this. Sort of. Um, it depends on, and that's such a lawyer answer, it depends, <laughs> um, but it, it greatly depends on the type of grand jury that we're talking about and on, on the place that it's happening and the rules in place. For federal grand juries, they, the life of the grand jury is typically 18 months, though we often see special grand juries, um, which can last for, for more than 18 months. And as, as Jeremy said, you know, they, they often do subpoena multiple people, approach multiple people, um, and it is typically not people who are at, at sort of the, the center of what they are looking for, um, but it is typically people who are less supported, less knowledgeable, less involved, and sort of on the, on the outskirts, it seemed like easier people to begin asking questions to, to rely on like that social instinct to have a conversation with um, as, as an investigation builds. The life of a grand jury is 18 months with the typical federal grand jury. And so things could have been rolling out for some time. I think there's um, what's interesting to me is that there have been a lot of grand juries in the news, um, not in movement news, but more in sort of like the popular political um, drama and like celebrity gossip news surrounding, um, you know, former President Trumputo and all of his cronies. And I think a lot of the way that you see this happening and, and it's being reported is you have folks who are sort of lower on the chain when, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy and a conspiracy is an agreement to do an unlawful act, not even an unlawful act itself. So investigating that agreement and finding people who will fold in on one another. And it's hard to know exactly when one person receives a subpoena at what stage of the investigation like the grand jury is at the documents about the life of the grand jury, sort of the impaneling, not who's on it, but all of those things should be made publicly available. And those are things that your, your legal team can be requesting. I think the important thing to know is that it could be 18 months. It could be longer. Much of it depends on what kind of grand jury it is and where it is as to exactly what we're going to be talking about when it comes to the consequences that people could be facing um, who are held in contempt. My understanding is what I've read 
and mind you, I'm not a legal mind, is that people generally receive these and then they they refuse to answer and they'll go through these, uh, you know, they'll talk to their lawyer in between every question. And that's one of the resistance methods I've been heard as being promoted. What is wrong with somebody getting a, a uh, grand jury summons and saying, fuck this, I'm going to go, I'm going to go walk, go for a two, uh, 18 month walk somewhere. Well, there are, we can always as lawyers litigate issues of service. If somebody was properly served or if not, the 18 month walk is a route that some people choose to take, right? We cannot as lawyers advise folks to be ignoring summonses from court. And I think a lot of times, as as Jeremy was saying, the psychological cost and like the psychological piece to this is real, right? The psychological cost of of going underground um, and sort of dodging that subpoena is something that I think is is very real um, and has its own sort of implications of needs of support and like how people are going to be um, surviving underground and really supported um, then when thinking like anywhere you turn, there could be a subpoena waiting for you. This is what I've heard is like, I remember 10, 15, 10 12 years ago, there was a number of activist case where the people would go, would, would respond to the jury they, and they would, they would get asked a question and they say, I would, um, I want to talk to my lawyer and then they step out and talk to their lawyer and they come back and say, due to my first, second, fifth and 14th the amendment rights, I declined to answer the question. Can you explain that process? And Jeremy, I believe you did that. So maybe you can talk about that as well. Sure. I, Jeremy has experience in a grand jury that like I'm never going to have as a lawyer who has represented people facing a grand jury because, again, that rule six of the federal rules of criminal procedure means that like what is happening within that room is is secret as to everyone outside of it and that the lawyers are not allowed in there with you. Our Our hope is that by finding a lawyer, by making sure you have that support, that we will be filing motions and sort of, we we don't want people to be getting to that room by themselves and feeling like you've got to come up with, right, and be remembering your rights and that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of litigation that can happen before you get to the room and sort of the prospect of testimony itself. There are ways that we would lay out how your rights apply. And often people will be immunized by the government when they say, well, I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right to not be giving testimony or potentially compelled to testify against myself. And the government will say, we're giving you immunity. So you don't need to worry about that. Um, And I'd be interested for some of Jeremy's sort of thoughts and experiences on the mechanics of of really how that works. Absolutely. so they had, um, by the time I actually walked into the uh, grand jury room in Alexandria, Virginia, it was basically a performative thing because very early on, they had notified my attorneys that they were going to be subpoenaing me. As a matter of fact, like a year, a year earlier, they had already subpoenaed Chelsea Manning. 
um, on roughly the same case and the same grand jury. So we kind of knew that this was a possibility. So when they did it, you know, we had made it clear to them very early on. We had no intention of cooperating with them as they had already known as well. Um, so it was very performative uh, and they did um, use the legal mechanism, as you had said, uh, of uh, the uh, transactional immunity. Um, so they, they had served me with a civil subpoena. It wasn't even a criminal charge or they had um, detained me uh, as a means to coerce my testimony. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you have many constitutional rights and arguments that you have elaborated, Sandra, one of which is, of course, the uh, Fifth Amendment, right? To, you don't have to incriminate yourself, right? You, you don't have to be compelled to testify and incriminate yourself. So one of the legal techniques that they use is offer you, well, okay, we're going to offer you transactional immunity. Uh, so that way, like you, you don't have to worry about incriminating yourself because what they're really interested in is usually, most often anyways, uh, somebody else. They want you to bury somebody else. Um, and so, you know, just to elaborate that they had already known that I had no intention of cooperating. They had already given me the transactional immunity, like very early on in the process before I had even walked into the room. And so I did walk into the room and they did make me affirm, um, you know, and so forth. I stepped down and, and uh, you know, we they asked a series of questions and, and they knew very clearly on that I wasn't going to answer any of them. But nevertheless, they asked them uh, and there was like 30 jury members just staring at watching my every word and. It was just a very surreal scene. First off, you know, you're coming from a jail and it's like dirty, like paint and you just eating bologna sandwiches and you're sitting in, in a bullpen for like all these hours. And then they just drag you in front of all this, this clean cut wood paneled carpeted room and all these people wearing street clothes and you're still in chains. Um, but they take the chains off just for that last second when they bring you into the room like uh, and you, you don't have your attorney present. There's not even a, a judge there. You know what I'm saying? It's just the prosecutor and his little show and his little charade. Um, and they tell you, oh, it's secret, but it's like, you can't even talk about it, but of course you're able to talk about it. But um, I, I, I guess I can't imagine what the specific question was, but it all, all just felt very performative to me. Like they're just going through the motions like they had already known what they were asking for was a bunch of bullshit. So it's like they just basically trying to punish everybody surrounding them. It's a political tool of oppression, as we know. So it, it, for me, though, was just another opportunity to give them the middle finger. Jeremy, I have a question, if you don't mind sharing a bit more, and it's been amazing to hear this experience from you. Um, was was there like temptation in your mind to kind of use that platform in that moment to educate the grand jurors about how effed up that process was? Or like what, what was going through your mind when you were answering those questions? Like, was it hard to be strategic about what you were saying? I mean, yeah, it was because first off, it's not like you're going to give it an opportunity to lecture to them. And again, I guess it's kind of the same way uh, when you're talking to a police officer is that, you, you know, you answer the questions and you, you can't answer the questions in a way that, you know, could endanger yourself or others or get caught around. So really, the best thing to do is just not say nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no way that you could, um, uh, you know, and in my particular case, um, although we had generally known in a sense what they were looking for, uh, they're asking about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, but uh, they asked like a series of perfunctory questions like, what is your name? Where are you from? And uh, I played along for the first like five questions just to see, and, and we knew, but just to lure the questions out, uh, not giving up any information about myself or any case or anybody else, but just to see where they, and that's a game that really I would say just not even bother playing. Like it's just no point in even playing that game. If I, did, if I had to do it again, I would actually probably do something more funny or something angry, honestly, because um, I, I to, to participate in that performance, even if they know to, to be a puppeteer in that thing uh, and just to be punished and just to go along, with it and standing up and still being in front of the judge and having to stand and sit for him is like, dude, I'm sorry, but like, I didn't agree to this process. I was supposed to be going home. So fuck you forever, first and foremost, right? Fuck you forever, right? And so these prosecutors, when they look me in the eye and they're smiling and laughing and stuff like that, like, like, okay, 
you're trying to put somebody else in prison. You're already fucked me over. Like, and you want me to smile and be nice to you too? Hell no. So there were a lot of things that I wanted to say to that jury and to that prosecutor. Um, but it really wasn't a venue for that. Uh, but the main thing about the questions, they were basically trying to get me to lie on Julian Assange. They asked if he had told me to hack Straffer and to attack other targets, which was not true. And they knew it wasn't true, but that's what they wanted. But I, I did get a couple lines in as well. And I did get to drink some street coffee. Uh, uh, shout outs to the uh, movement lawyers, by the way. So how, how, how different would, uh, is the experience you're hearing from Jeremy from other people you've uh, counseled through uh, grand juries? Personally, this is what I would hope I would do. Um, what, if I'm ever called into a court, I, I hope to be able to use Abby Hoffman's line if they threaten me with contempt. Well, then stop being so contemptible. But Sandra, Kira, experiences. Contempt is more than just a feeling, you know? <laughs> like, um, and I, no, I, Jeremy, I, I know, and I would be interested in hearing about like the experience of harassment toward like the end of your bid and the way that like, particularly the subpoena in um, the Eastern District of Virginia, um, I think was was used as a tool of harassment because you were not served a subpoena on the street or approached on the street, which is sort of what I have seen. I feel really lucky, frankly, to be surrounded um, by by people who have counseled clients through this and litigated grand jury subpoenas. Um, for, you know, all the way back to the guys at the People's Law Office in Chicago. Um, you know, to, you know, my, my co-counsel um, and good friend, Maura Meltzer-Cohen, who has been doing a lot of work around um, grand jury defense and that we have, um, you know, a wealth of experience to be learning from, um, you know, some of the, in Charlottesville, because I'm a Virginia uh, lawyer. And so I did represent some um, survivors from the August 11th and 12th um, white supremacist rallies and attacks in Charlottesville. And I think this is a whole other question too, because it's like the, when the federal government is investigating people who would ordinarily, you would see as your adversaries, like, is it not okay to be cooperating um, with investigations into, into fascists? And so there, I'm every sort of experience, every court has its own weird culture that Right. We as as people participating in the court drama need to sort of learn how to navigate every person's experience with a grand jury subpoena and really sort of the aims of the state and the particular U.S. attorney when we're talking about federal subpoenas I think shakes out really differently. I'm glad we're having this conversation. I think the, the history of resistance is something that is important for us to be highlighting and learning from one another on. Um, and I'd be interested in hearing too, especially about Jeremy's experiences with BOP um, and how the, the subpoena that you faced most recently um, was, was a tool of harassment in that way. Right. Um, first of all, I just want to give much respects uh, to the folks that you had mentioned, uh, the uh, movement attorneys and the folks who had been uh, a continuum of resistance to these grand juries over the years because of uh, because of that stuff that's I've heard about it as a kid when I was growing up and I and, and it had always been such strong symbols of resistance to me when people had done that. And so by the time when it came to be my turn, you know, what I'm saying like I felt like I was part of a, uh, a continuum of resistance. Uh, I had some other folks who had 
drawn from the same experiences who had shared and lived to tell about it and, and come out the other end and had uh, basically said, as I'm saying now, I'd rather be where I'm at than where they're at. You know what I'm saying? Because um, I just think about all the other folks who went the other way. You know what I'm saying? Like the person who told on me. Um, and, and so and all the others, so they, you know, they have to live with the fact that they had literally like helped the state bury somebody uh, because they could not uh, become accountable for what they had uh, done themselves or because they had decided to give somebody else a time or they moved in a way uh, with loose lips that had endangered others. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that our movement is pretty strong about that. As far as me, um, the tools of repression of the BOP done. Um, yeah, I, as you had mentioned, I was already incarcerated by the time they had got around to my subpoena. Um, I was actually uh, three months from the door, um, about to go home. And it did not feel real. I, I kept looking at the calendar and, you know, I had already done, um, I think about at that time, eight years uh, flat. Um, and then I was about to go home. I was about to finish this program, this drug program that I was going to uh, earn up to like eight, nine months off. Usually you get a year, but they had already messed me up on some good time. And I was only getting a little bit of time anyways. But anyways, the, they had uh, notified my attorneys that they had planned to do this to me, that they were planning on bringing me from, I was at FCI Memphis, a medium security federal institution uh, where I was finishing this program about to release. And uh, we had said to them, he's like, well, listen, can we do this in a way that we don't have to be transferred, go through like, you know, the six jails to get to Virginia where they don't have to suspend my involvement in this program. Is there another way we could do this virtually? Cause first off, he's clear. He's not going to, no, nah, they, they really were all about uh, the harassment uh, and the disruption to my bid. Uh, as you know, like when you, when you make it to federal prison, it's a little bit better than some of these pretrial conditions and these detention centers, you know, after you do a couple of years, you kind of build up some personal property, you get like a, a movement or a routine within the institution, you might find a job placement, you might find your homies that you work out with, you might, you know, be involved in recreational activities, right? All that, you know, is that they took that, put you right back in the grinder, you got to start from zero at all these pre-child detention centers. Um, so first and foremost, by pulling me out of that program, I already lost like eight, nine months of my sentence, which they just completely ambivalent about, uh, they don't give a damn. Um, and then they, uh, even though there's nothing explicitly uh, defined in any, uh, as far as I recall, maybe you could correct me on the standard, but about what to do in cases where somebody is already serving time and then they had um, been served with a civil subpoena. And what the judge had determined was that uh, because um, if they uh, were to just allow uh, my time to run, uh, which I don't know what jurisdiction this guy had anyways, Eastern District of Virginia, I don't know what that has to do with the I was sentence in the second uh, second circuit, the Southern District of Illinois, but he decided to suspend the, the serving of my sentence. I even hate using the word serving because I wasn't serving nothing, right? They forced me the situation, but they suspended the serving of that sentence uh, because they uh, wanted the coercive, uh, if they were not to suspend it, it would undermine the coercive nature of the uh, time or whatever. Um, and so uh, they dragged that off for another six months. Um, and then even beyond that, uh, by the time that they finally did, uh, we win with motions. Um, me and Chelsea both, they dropped the grand jury. It took me um, about six months to get back to the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and by the way, in which case I was already, even with the time off, I was already immediately eligible for release if I were to have been in a Bureau of Prisons facility. Uh, because if I was, I could have access to case managers who could arrange release plans and halfway house placement. You know, usually the last 10% of your sentence in the feds, you are eligible for a halfway house in a community confinement or uh, at the time uh, the COVID was happening and that they were releasing people to home confinement. Uh, but because I was in some punk ass raggedy little pretrial detention centers all along the way, uh, got stuck in transit, Grady County. Uh, during the pandemic, they suspended all transfers. Well, actually, they were transferring people to court to face charges and to get sentenced. But anybody else who was going back to the Bureau of Prisons or whatever like that, they just think of it. They just kept kept them in these transfer centers for people coming in and out with COVID, caught COVID there. Someone died at that jail. 
right? And all I had to do was just be in a Bureau of Prison facility. But I, instead, I was there six months waiting for them to sign my release papers. They finally sent me this place, finally made it back to the BOP. They took them another five months to sign my Bureau of Prison papers, even though I was immediately eligible for release as soon as I got back. But it's just, this is just regular stuff. This is not even like targeted BOP stuff. This is just the regular uh, behavioral uh, indifference and uh, callousness of the Bureau of Prisons to, to, to talk about release uh, and so forth. Uh, in the end, I got like about two months of halfway house on a 10 year sentence. So ultimately, I did a whole year. She may be mad, but in, in any sense, it just uh, really just solidifies my analysis um, and uh, deepens my, um, I guess you could say, resentment and venge, uh, lust for revenge, honestly. Uh, and it is because they're never going to forget this. Never going to forget the people I've met. I'm not going to forget what they've done to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you how do you take that year back? I mean, it's one thing. It's like if you do time for stuff that you know that you did. Uh, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the laws, but I knew that it was a consequence of my action. Um, and so I could stomach that time a little bit easier. But when they just throw some bogus ass made up charges just as a political maneuver or they just to them, your release is just whether it's five months or zero months or whatever like that is like we're talking about human beings. We're not talking about animals. We're not talking about expiration dates on products here. Tell my people, you know, um, and so just to do a political stunt like that or so for some prosecutor to make a name or like that, like um, it just more and more deepens my resistance and the urge to just burn this whole system to the ground. Just burn it down and set everyone go. All these laws are just raw expressions of power at the end of the day. And, I, and I'm, I have so much respect for the patients, first and foremost, that someone like you, uh, uh, Sandra, and other attorneys who are involved in this, because just to have to get involved in the, the frivolous language of power. Um, to fight it um, is frustrating um, and it's saddening. And, and the role that you play, uh, I just want to commend you for it because it has an extreme material difference on the lives of people because the, the lawyers who had represented me on this case and on my original case, they got me out, man. They got me out. They, I, I, If I didn't have them, which I, I didn't have to pay a dime for, you know what I'm saying? They, they had my back the whole step of the way of the process. I, I, I only wish that this uh, could have been extended to you know everybody who had uh, uh, suffering this, uh, these circumstances, but hopefully one day, once we burn this thing down, we will never have to deal with this again. Sandra, is it possible to just go through basically a dummy's uh, guide for grand jury resistance and, and Jeremy or Kira, you know, put your, put your two fingers up if you need to cut in because, you know, it's great to hear about the heroes. And one of the things, Jeremy, if you actually have heroes who did the grand jury resistance i would love to hear about them for me it was the uh, it was the prairie fire people the um the uh, puerto rican uh independentistas who who dealt with this that really when i was just a kid that you know i i, I felt steel from them one of the the most inspiring demos i was at was in 86 in hartford when the uh the committee to, for the uh, Puerto Rican independent uh, political prisoners did, did an amazing demo. Uh, I'd love to hear about heroes and a dummy's guide to, to uh, grand jury resistance, because is this, when you're, when you're scared, when you're stressed, when they've woken you up at four in the morning to harass you, you're in reptile brain. I want this to, to be at a brainstem level, just like we say, you know, when the cops say, I don't talk to police, you know, just on a brainstem level. First and foremost, never talk to cops. Never talk to cops. 
do some role play with your homies. So you feel comfortable with people in any situation, trying to get information from you and never talk to cops. It's okay for it to be awkward, but I think that that is like the first thing is like always be, if, if you're approached about something, talk to your homies, talk to your lawyer homies and get support. The secrecy of this thing is really where it thrives to me. And so not talking to cops, but talking loudly to community about what's going down um, is, is, I would say, the, the summary. In terms of the legal mechanics, if you get a grand jury subpoena, respond. Don't say, I will X, Y, and Z. It is, I'm going to talk to my lawyer. My lawyer will be in touch. The lawyers will do what we can to cancel or quash that subpoena. We will go through all the various rights that you have um, and investigating the ways that subpoena is often illegally propounded based on unlawful surveillance and seeking information that is protected by your constitutional rights. Right? We will be sort of engaged in that run-up between that federal rule of secrecy and the, the rights that everybody is, is sort of purported to have that are superior to everything else. We will be engaging in those sort of power games through book reports. Um, I think the most important thing is to never, ever talk to police, right? The way that sometimes this will work is that people will be asking you questions and creating basically what's a perjury trap. It's a crime to lie to a federal agent. And so something that you say here, and if you say something different in front of the grand jury, those things can be used to put you in a hard position. And so I think the, the first thing that I want people to hear, right, is we've got your back, right? There is a long legacy of lawyers, of people who have resisted grand juries and have trusted the lawyers to, um, to be in it with them. And I think finding people who have been through it before. Um, there are I, so many people that I can, you know, Steve Martinez, um, the, Jerry from New York, you know, I know that my, my good friend Mo um, was representing for a long time. He's now a lawyer. Um, Katie Yao does some incredible support work um, and previously represented a grand jury. There are so many people out there who are ready to support you, who have your back and who want to get you in touch with sort of the technicians. That's how I think of us. We're, we're technicians in like bad colonial spell work. Um, get you in touch with those technicians. Um, the first thing is don't talk to the cops. Call your lawyer homies. Let your community know what's going down. Once you're at the grand jury, what are the strategies that you can do best? Talking to the lawyers, being prepared, right? Having time to run through. Sometimes it's even a matter of delay by a couple of days, right? Which people are supposed to have in between being held in contempt, um, right? Working with the legal team and with your support team um, to be sort of asserting the rights and like the procedural protections at every single stage. Do not try to go this alone. 
is what I would say. And I mean, I think generally I would say that not just in the grand jury context, but in all of it, like we shouldn't be trying to go it alone. Um, when you get to the grand jury, knowing who you're working with, like knowing who your teammate is, you know, your lawyer and support team on the other side of that door, and that you're going to be able to come out of that room that Jeremy was describing and to be able to check in with people. Um, once you get to the grand jury, feeling prepared as you can be for the unknown um, and having that support behind you, the are if we do things, if we as lawyers and support and community do things, um, if we do them the best, right, then the, the hope is that you won't ever have to get into that chamber, um, talking to those people and looking at them. Um, but it is to, to be prepared um, and to know that people have done this and have resisted grand juries since the Federalists were investigating the Anti-Federalists right after the founding of this particular political experiment. And we've got your back. Um, the, the thing about resisting and about being held in contempt is there's a real possibility of contempt. There's a real possibility of being locked up for contempt um, and of being fined for contempt of a grand jury. And it's, I think, having that community support, it is, which the lawyers, like we're this tiny piece of like actually going in and saying things and like writing the book reports. But it's when you know that your family is going to be taken care of, when you know that your homies are going to be there, when you know that people are outside and not forgetting about you, um, that that to me is the thing that really makes grand jury resistance um, you know, in, in my experience of it, um, something that is possible is, is the support that we give to each other to get through that contempt. And, you know, the reality is, is that like, if you, if you remain silent for long enough, if you refuse to cooperate, and this is something, um, our good friend Mo has done a lot of litigation around is at some point, that contempt is supposed to be persuasive and not punitive. I don't know how locking someone in a cage is not punitive, but it's supposed to be coercive or persuasive. And if at some point it becomes clear that you will not be coerced or persuaded by any amount of caging or fines, then, then the court really has to deal with that and should be releasing you, right? Like we need people to know there are ways to fight this. There are ways to resist, even when you're inside. And Jeremy, I, I thank you for sharing about the BOP and about what this really looked like, like the cost to you, um, because it's not nothing, but there are ways to, to get through it and to come through the other side and know that you're going to have support the entire time. What is the motion that will can get someone released called? What did we call that? And can you talk a little more about that? Sure. The motion um, is called a, a grumbles motion. Uh, we call it that because it is named after the, the grumbles case, um, which essentially says because the, the recalcitrant People are able to be locked up by power of the court through this law that's called the recalcitrant witness statute. It allows for a court 
to imprison or fine a non-cooperating witness. I'm not going to rant right now about who gets imprisoned under the recalcitrant witness statute versus who gets fined. Roger Stone was resisting a grand jury in D.C. the entire time Jeremy and Chelsea were in, and he never saw a day inside from that. So there's some real political choices that happen around this. Um, But the recalcitrant witness statute says that the imprisonment of a witness can last until the witness cooperates or until the grand jury adjourns. Um, If a witness is never going to cooperate, um, then the Grumbles motion, which came from the, the Second Circuit, was the Grumbles case. It said that at some point, the incarceration, if it becomes clear that someone is never going to cooperate, becomes punitive. And it cannot be punitive without full criminal process. Um, And so the court must release somebody when it's clear that it's not going to have that coercive or persuasive effect. This is something that has worked to varying degrees before different judges in different federal circuits. Um, it's something that, you know, my my good colleague, Mo, would encourage you to talk to if you make this a running thing. Um, you know, it, it has really been fighting a lot of um, and has been pushing in a couple of different circuits. As we talk about actually what is the, you know, what are the limits on grand jury subpoena power and what are the limits on grand jury contempt power? Because when we get in there, it feels like actually they're just going to do whatever they want for as long as they want. Um, And so really holding them to their own law um, and to the premises of the law um, as applied to grand jury witnesses is what that grumbles motion is all about. It's not a guarantee, right? Judges misinterpret the law. Grand jury law and sort of um, legal reasoning is like a very tiny little obscure corner of legal representation and types of representation that people can do. In my experiences, the courts don't understand the law very well here either. And so these are all things that we can and will do um, when somebody is facing a subpoena and being locked up for contempt is to be making those points and to be trying to get folks out as soon as possible. And I think the broader point is to make sure that we are supporting people and that we are like showing up in a way that people feel like they can let us know when this is going down so that we can build that support so that people feel confident, right, enough to be able to resist the subpoena to engage with the process and to know that like community is going to have you all the way through, right? From the day like that door knock happens to the day you are out, we got your back. How effective is it exposing every question they ask you? Can there be, can you be penalized for publicizing every question that the prosecutor asks you, or what are the possible consequences of that? Grand jury witnesses, and this is again about federal grand juries, um, but rule 6E, the secrecy, like that, that federal rule of criminal procedure, it's a tiny little rule, but it has so much power, and that it does not apply to the witnesses, which is why Jeremy is allowed to tell us what was asked, what that looks like, what it was like inside. Some of the judges don't understand this. Some of the prosecutors don't understand this. 
in terms of how effective it is to be getting that information out to the movement, I think that sort of efficacy really depends on, on the support crew, on the lawyers, on the way that people are building support so that people can know what is going on. Um, you know, just sort of publicizing the questions in the absence of like an understanding of the history of repression and how this is being used to sort of cave whatever movement moment we are in um, is, is hard to tell in a vacuum. And I think a lot of it really relies on, on the movement who is, who is supporting and surrounding um, the, the witness that is experiencing this for us to make you know, the most out of what we can, out of the, the little bit of publicity that we get in the grand jury process. So can people talk about some of the histories of grand jury resistors? I mean, we have one person here who's done it. What do we know, little vignettes about what happened and what people did? Some stories of bravery, some, some, a little bit of hero worship. I'll just pipe in real quick. I'm, I'm, I'm not prepared to give a whole exhaustive history of the uh, continuum of grand jury resistors. Um, but I just want to say uh, real quick, I was uh, in the early stages of when I was pre-trial, I was uh, incarcerated with our good friend, Jerry, who is a grand jury resistor in New York. Um, and I, I seen him have to go through the whole gamut. Um, and, um, you know, it, it isn't easy. You know, it is is actually a, one of the worst things that could ever possibly happen to somebody is be put in the cage and go through the rigmarole of, of uh, the national attention and the feds. You're not, not even sure when you're going to get out or whether there's more charges heading on you or anybody else. It's one of the worst things in the world. But um just being on that side of the walls and the fences and also being on the other side and the prisoner support crews and the ones receiving the letters of support and writing the letters of support, I got to say, man, it, it is, um, none of us are alone in this, right? You know what I'm saying when you, when you take those steps to be becoming involved in the movement, you're, you're, you're taking steps on behalf of the earth and, and, and the community and so forth. Um, it, despite as much as they want to try to focus on the criminality and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, the whole, uh, is it coercion or is it punitive? Um, I just think that, uh, the way to go about that is uh, is to show them that you are just uncoercible and a stubborn motherfucker as possible and just resisting in every step of the way. Um, just refuse, resist. Um, and uh, and there is a, a good continuum of people doing just that. Um, and and it, again, it, it really comes down to, like you said, being able to psychologically prepare yourself for the worst possible possible circumstances. At the end of the day, temper is a very freedom thing that they come and take it as it goes. The, the future is not promised to us. There, there may not even be a tomorrow, but at, at the moment, they could take everything from you, your whole body, your freedoms. They could disrupt your family's life. They could disrupt your job, all that. But one thing that they could never, ever, ever take is what's inside of you. And that's what they're trying to take. That's what they're trying to take. They're trying to break you and they're trying to break, break the community. Right. But as long as you have, I, even it's a corny reference, right? B for Vendetta. But that last one inch that um, uh, she talks about. Uh, um, and one of the letters uh, transmitted from one prisoner to another under the uh, the walls uh, was that there's this one inch that they can't ever take. And um, that's what we just got to keep hold of. Uh, and, as, and as they put you in a cage and put you in a tiny ass mat and give you nasty water and fucking cornbread. And if that's all they do, man, you could always sit there and bang in the cells and yell at them because you got something that they aren't ever going to have. You're going to have integrity. You're going to have uh, uh, the, the community on your side. It's, as much as they want to think that you got nothing but those brick walls and stuff. But uh, yeah, you're part of something, right? And and it's not forever. Nothing. It's not forever. And and when you get out, like you said, whether it's six months, which seems to be the average for these grand jury things, but they could do you 18 months. 
Uh, the prosecutor in my case said, hey, we could do the 18 months and then we could just do it again. And then, you know, we could give you criminal charges on top of that. What do you say about that? And be like, OK, show me to my motherfucking jail cell, man. Like, I'll, I'll do this shit. I'll be I'll be back, man. I'll be I'll be out one day. You know, you might have today, but you, your, your, your power is only short lived, man. And this shit is crumbling if you ain't noticed. Um, and you're not going to take that last inch. Not for now, man. And, and when we come, we're coming to take everything. We're coming to take everything. And there will be there will be no mercy on this shit, man. We, we remember everything. All the motherfuckers. I'm sorry. I'm going to cut that one short. I, I, I actually forget what the original question was. Um, but it was cool to hang out with Jerry. Uh, you had also mentioned other folks. Um, I just real quick, uh, just another weird uh, one. Bernadine Dorn was also at that MCC um, building in New York when she was refusing to give up uh, her handwriting. I think they wanted to compare some of her handwriting to some manifestos or something along those lines. Um, and a technical thing like that, though, I, I think what they ended up doing was they found her handwriting another way. So when when there are these type of investigations and they're snooping around, you're seeing stuff like that, like sometimes uh, you want to know what they know. And that's why it's like you had said, Sandra, it's important that you um, expose this stuff to the community. So the way people know what they know to the extent that they show their hand um, so the way people could adjust their moves accordingly. Um, but uh, man, I'm just rambling. So on to the next one. Sorry about that. The history of grand jury resistance. I mean, I, I would love to talk about this and explore this with you all for hours, right? Like the, the history of grand jury resistance, um, specifically from, from communities and movements seeking liberation. There's a long history of grand jury resistance in like the organized crime, um, like typically sort of mafia community. And, um, you know, it is like literally what this is is a secretive process that is used to undermine community strength and power that is sort of outside of like that, that state apparatus. And so, you know, I think in recent history, I'd say in the, the past hundred years, um, you have grand jury resistance during the Red Scare you have grand jury resistance in the face of, of COINTELPRO. Um, you mentioned Bernadine Dorn, anti-war, Black liberation, um, you know, the Black liberation movement experienced a lot of grand jury resistance. And when we're looking at, when I, as a lawyer, am researching cases and I'm seeing people's names come up and I'm seeing that they're like associated with the Black Panther Party. I mean, it, these these things are like literally when you choose to resist when you choose to fight it all the way, right? It is years later down the road, like my, you know, trash panda lawyer self is, is looking to, to our people, right? Like our ancestors in the movement who have done this before. The lawyers are but a small part of it. The heart that it takes to stand firm with in, in the face of the unknown um, is so incredible. And, it, and it's been the, you know, Jeremy mentioned what they did to Bernadine. Um, and it was right, I believe, at the end, sort of as people were coming back from being underground, that Bernadine got slapped with that subpoena. We see it with the green scare, especially after 9-11, sort of the, you know, vamped up um, national security state concentrating on, on you know, environmental liberation activists, as opposed to what the, the state was purportedly um, getting all this support for. Um, and, it, and it really shows you know, who <laughs> who that is that they want to go after. You know, the, the history of grand jury resistance, Jerry, 
Um, we've had people in more recent years at Standing Rock around Charlottesville, right? Back into sort of WikiLeaks and it's it's ongoing, the case against Assange, whatever we think of him, um, that that case is ongoing um, and, it, and it obviously is concerning the democratization of information um, and what the state does and doesn't want people to know through this secret apparatus. The history of grand jury resistance is so deep. I'm, I'm really, I don't know, thank you all so much for having this conversation. I hope we can continue. I really hope we can continue. You know, the, the ins and outs, the mechanics of it um, are one thing, the, the stories of resistance, right? what people have gone through and how they've like maintained that heart um, through the whole bid are, are really where I think, um, you know, we can take, we can take heart, like, you know, be strong hearted in facing whatever, whatever struggle it is that we in our communities are looking at. Um, and it is real. And I think we'll continue. And Marina, thank you for um, having this conversation with us. It is super important. Thank you all very much for coming on, on VMN, Sandra, Kira, Jeremy. And yes, I think we need to have more of this discussions before we finish this, Kira, did you want to talk a little bit about what prompted us having this discussion on a Vermont-based, Vermont-centered uh, podcast? Yeah, sure, I could do that. Um, I really don't have a ton to add. Like, I don't have any attorney experience with uh, grand jury subpoenas or anything like that. But this was a conversation that came up uh, between Marina and I after... Um, Burlington, Vermont had a pride event and this turf dude showed up and then uh, was holding a nasty sign and um, some folks were standing in front of him trying to make sure that little kids and general pride goers like weren't reading this disgusting transphobic sign and then he um did what you see on like I don't know if anybody watches like pro soccer when like someone like flicks them and then they theatrically trip and then cry foul um so that happens and we had a bunch of friends uh, worried about cops sniffing around for folks or worried that um that this turf would try to use uh what happened as this, you know, part of the ongoing battle in Vermont seen like a huge rise in in transphobic violence and um we, we got a little concerned when uh, J.K. Rowling like started tweeting about it, and it was like one of those. Well, we should we should probably just start seeding these um, knowledge in this conversation in the community as far in advance as possible. Um, and I think I guess that would be like the one thing I would want to add to this conversation is like way beyond in advance of an incident like that happening, or way beyond in advance of somebody doing a door knock. I think there maybe the real work starts. Uh, with like some sort of cultural work within the movement and that includes just like um, I don't know like it's it's security culture really it is how do we build the culture in our movement where we can talk about these things openly and thinking about heroes too and just like all I know about what this process is is that even the people that we we hold as heroes like the reality of all of this is so messy and like nobody actually perfectly navigates um the process of state repression or being a target of state repression and that like um understanding that and being open about that marina and i were talking about this earlier like when we uh, when we do make mistakes or if we accidentally do say something to a cop like um if we have the movement culture that allows us to like uh 
have a practice of like loving each other through our mistakes rather than running around trying to pretend that we're all perfect and we never make mistakes because then we're surprised by the state rather than being able to make plans with each other and operate from a basis of like fully informed this is what's happening and we're not expecting each other to be the perfect grand jury resistors and we're not expecting each other to like know how to handle every cop interaction we're just like gonna show up for each other um kind of consistently and just be always like doing that uh I don't know that seems important to just like start to have these conversations and to also like not see security culture as a reason to like close each other off to like we want to we want to be careful about what we share and who we share it with but I somebody testifying to a rumor they heard like evidence rules don't apply in grand juries and hearsay is not like a barrier to incrimination so even if you are like I don't trust this person like I'm going to hold them at arm's length they could still get subpoenaed they could still share some things that they heard somebody say that they heard from somebody else and that could still be really damaging like um it's not so much about putting walls up with each other but like actually finding ways to strategically lower our walls and um I don't know, just like the most important security culture work we can do is this relationship building so that it doesn't get to the point where we're like <laughs> in the chamber uh, with people. I don't know. Yeah, um, that's all. Uh, appreciate the space for this conversation. And Jeremy, it's been really, really helpful to hear your personal experience with all of this. This was VMN Volume 3, Episode 10. VMN was formerly known as Vermont Movement News and can be found on podcast apps as Vermont Movement News. Thank you very much. Solidarity.